Welcome to California Groundbreakers, a place that sets trends, starts movements, and shakes up how things are done around the world. We're inviting interesting people doing innovative things to sit down and talk with us about how they're asking and answering the big questions facing all Californians. Our goal is to inspire change across the state, one conversation at a time. Tonight, we're holding a food for thought discussion about getting farm to fork into California's public schools. Eating local, sustainable, and seasonal is a message we hear a lot in Sacramento, which calls itself the farm to fork capital of the nation. But is that message making its way into school lunchrooms here as well? Many California school districts are trying to get local ingredients on the menu. And plenty of organizations, from Bay Area startups to California Department of Food and Agriculture, are helping them out by offering everything from cooking classes and free after-school snacks to farm tours and food literacy education. But can cash-strapped school districts afford a fresh and organic food budget? Do federal rules and regulations make it easy for them to partner up with farmers? And will school kids even eat it if it's not fried or chocolate? Join us for a food-focused conversation about how schools, students, parents, farmers, and foodies can work together to bring the fresh and healthy cuisine California is famous for into its public schools. Hi everyone, welcome to California Ground Bakers. We're a civic engagement organization here in the California capital of Sacramento, and we focus on innovators doing groundbreaking things around the state. My name is Vanessa Richardson, and I'm the executive director. And tonight we're holding one of our food for thought discussions. And this is a really good one because it's looking at a popular food movement in California and, and really here too in Sacramento, this is our slogan, farm to fork, and how it intersects with serving food to some of the pickiest eaters out there, kids. So we're taking a look specifically at how to get, uh, like the topic, like the title mentions, how to get farm to fork into public schools. And so when I was doing research, I thought this is a big whopping number. California public schools serve 560 million lunches a year. And I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm curious to see what Sacramento City Unified of that 560 million you serve. But that's a lot. And in a state that also grows a lot of this country's food, it makes sense that uh, California kids would eat California-grown meals. And obviously a lot of school districts are working on that. We have two people from Sac City Unified on here to talk about that. Uh, someone from the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and also a private company that's doing gangbusters. So there's a lot of efforts, but there's still a lot of challenges, I guess. And it seems like there's three questions that we need to ask and see if there's answers. How will school districts pay for this? We all know school districts are having financial issues in general across the board. So how will they pay for this? How can parents, farmers, and other food promoters help? And will California kids eat it if it's not fried or it covered in chocolate? Uh, I'm a uh, long story short, I'm now a part-time librarian at Ethel Phillips Elementary in Sac City Unified. The kids are great, but I see they're very picky. And so this is what kind of sparked me to do this, uh, to see how to lure them and get them into loving the kind of food that we want to bring into the schools. Uh, some I know are going to go for it, some we'll see. But anyway, we brought together a great group of panelists who are working hard at putting healthier options on school children's food trays and educating them about farm to school um, for them personally and then professionally as well, maybe even as a career. And so as we always strive to do with our events, 
we want to know how we, Californians, parents, students, people who work in the public sector, the private sector, and foodies in general, can help bring the, the cuisine that California is known for into its schools statewide. So before I introduce the panelists, I do want to give a few special thanks to the people who helped make this event uh, happen. Uh, first and foremost, of course, we're holding this in the lovely Fitzsim Studios in Sacramento. So I want to do I want to thank the owners, Marco and Caitlin Zar, for hosting us. Thank you very much. And follow them on Instagram, Fitzsim Studios. Thank you very much, guys. Also, a special, special thanks to my caterer tonight and bartender, I roped her in, Jennifer Fregata. Uh, she is a caterer and personal chef who specializes in farm-to-table food. So for those of you who haven't tried the free appetizers, those are Jennifer's. Also, uh, she paired up with and three other businesses, Route 64, Penny Produce, and Lizzie's Bakehouse. And why I mention their names is they are all graduates from the Alchemy Kitchen, which is here in Sacramento. They're a food business incubator uh, run by the Alchemist Community Development Corporation. So I also want to give thanks to the people from Alch Alchemist, Jacob Sachs and Tisha Sohai, for their help in bringing Jennifer and Farm to Fork food to this event. So thank you very much. Also, volunteers extraordinaire, Nicole Grant-Krieg and Nate Graham, thank you again as always for, su for supporting Groundbreakers and helping out the events. Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio, who's gonna make us all sound good recording this program. Of course, the panelists for taking time out of your busy schedule. And of course, to the audience for taking time out of your busy schedule too. So I'm gonna get started. I'm gonna ask questions first, and then we'll have Q&A from the audience. So for panelists, I'd like you to introduce yourselves, obviously one by one. Besides the typical questions, your name and your current role in organization, I always like to get a little personal note about you um, so we kind of, you know, see what you are into in terms of food. Because school lunches are one thing we're going to be talking a lot today, I wanted to know what your favorite lunchtime meal is of all time right now in the hot weather, just a good lunchtime meal that you very much enjoy. And I'm going to start with the woman on my left. Hi, I'm uh, Kirsten Toby. I'm the co-founder and chief impact officer of Revolution Foods. Um, we are a company based in Oakland, California. So just a, you know, a couple hours in traffic <laughs> west of here. Um, we uh, produce and, well, we design, produce, and deliver um, various different kinds of um, of products as well as sort of platforms for um, for healthy, high-quality school meals, primarily um, that are compliant with the federal guidelines, so that they can be served to kids uh, on the free and reduced lunch program. Um, about 80% of the two and a half million meals per week that we serve um, across the country are going to low-income kids. So our our primary focus really is on getting high-quality, nutritious food into the schools and communities where um, that access is you know is least um, prevalent. My favorite lunch meal, um, well, it's a good question. I, a I, favorite. Love, I love a big salad with pretty much any kind, like any kind of fruits and vegetables just chopped up and mixed together, and um, I always throw some protein on there. Uh, and a special shout out to you. Thank you, Kirsten, for coming from Oakland and, and braving the traffic. Appreciate it. Next up. I'm Diana Flores. Um, thank you for having me here today. I'm the Director of School Nutrition here at Sacramento City Unified. We serve 81 schools between the 60 plus schools from Sacramento and then another 11 or 12 charter schools in the area. 
We serve approximately 47,000 meals per day. Um, we have 350 staff that do that at our cafeterias, and um, we're building a central kitchen. I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. And my favorite meal would be probably soup and salad, and I just had potato and leek soup, and um, I think you can make a soup every day of the year and it'd be great. And I l wanna do that in our kitchen, so. All right, next up, thank you. Hi everybody, my name is Nick Anisich, and I'm the Farm to School Program Lead with the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Uh, before that, I worked just down the street at Sac High and uh, was the program coordinator for Edible Sac High, where we were building curriculum on the ground with teachers, doing fundraising, teaching the cooking club, um, so really working on the ground. After that, I worked at Soilborn Farms, which is just up the road in Rancho Cordova, and I was kind of like a food systems facilitator there, where we were working together uh, with local partners to try to improve food access in the community. And then just since December of last year, I've been working with the Department of Food and Agriculture, and my main role there is managing our California Farm to School Network, which has about 4,000 members, and it's about supporting farm to school practitioners on the ground, trying to figure out what resources they need, what best practices I can share, and how to continue to inspire people who are doing such great work all over the state and it's a giant state, so getting all across it is, is a big job, but I really, really love hearing from people and, and working to support them. Uh, my favorite lunch would be uh, grandma's grilled cheese, and uh, if that is not available, I'll just take any delicious seasonal fruit. It is, uh, I need to eat light or I'll be napping, so uh, that's what I like to do. Alrighty, uh, my name is Todd McPherson. I am a teacher at Luther Burbank High School um, and director, I guess, of sorts of the Urban Agriculture Academy. It's a new program we started at Luther Burbank around the Burbank Urban Garden, um, which is about a one acre school garden that used to be an old FFA program um, that kind of fell apart and then was down for about 10 years and we've got it started again. Um, so. I was working in school gardens in and around Sacramento um, and looking for ways to create a sustainable program and I thought, hey, well, maybe I'll get a teaching credential and get that started. So that's been wild for the last three years. Um, but we have a really cool program, um, three years of consecutive classes in urban agriculture and food, um, getting young people from Luther Burbank High School inspired and engaged in the food system. Um, and if you're familiar with Sacramento, it's a very diverse community, so it's, it's really awesome. Um, so I, I thoroughly enjoy my time there and we've built an amazing garden. Um, the kids have built it and now we've got a lot growing there and we're kind of shifting gears into what are we going to do with all this really cool stuff. Um, eating it, preparing it, selling it, putting together small food businesses and they get to, to run that themselves. Um, so that's my little angle out there with the kids growing and getting them inspired um, that way. And I think my favorite meal is easily going to be breakfast, lunch, and dinner, tacos, you know, <laughs> fully California. Um, I love them, any kind of tacos. And last but not least. Hi, I'm Amber Stott, and I am the founder and chief food genius of the nonprofit Food Literacy Center. Our mission is to inspire kids to eat their vegetables. And we do this by going into elementary schools in uh, after-school programs, and we teach cooking and nutrition. And we do this in Title I schools. And um, our nonprofit is about eight years old, and we serve anywhere from you know eight schools in a semester to um, 
you know, people in the community where we go to library programs, all kinds of things. And let's see, my favorite lunch, I do not have one because I love all the things. And right now, if anything came with an heirloom tomato, I would be very happy. All right, thank you again, panelists. And now I'm hungry, I, I, want, I want grilled cheese with tomatoes and a potato leek soup, but I'll save it for later. So I'm gonna ask each of you a question. I'm gonna start with Diana um, as the head lunch lady at the City of Sacramento Public Schools. You know, we had conversed briefly over email and I, I noticed one thing that stuck, stuck out when we were conversing was it's been a 10 year plus mission for you to increase the offerings and volume of farm to school and, and get all those freshly prepared meals for students. So I guess since there's, you know, Saxe Unified, we're in that district. Can you give us an overview of you know, what you have done in that past 10 years? I know, kind of crunch it down to a summary. And then what's next? The central kitchen sounds like that is a big part of it. So I asked Vanessa how much time I had, and she said five minutes. I'm like, oh my goodness, I can't do that in five minutes. Um, but I will say that I do want to share what a lot of the public does not know. Sac City Unified, you probably all know, has a financial, um, a lot of financial concerns. We've been in the news a lot. But our school nutrition program is self-funded, meaning we do not get a penny from the district. People do not know that about school meal programs. We are funded from USDA, mostly federal funds, a little bit of state funds. In total, we get about $3.50 for a free lunch. 75% of our school enrollment receive free lunches. Of that $3.50, $1.50 of it goes to food costs. Actually, it's the other way around. $1.40 of it goes to food costs, and $1.50 of it goes to labor. Um, we do have very expensive benefit package, which you've probably heard about too. Um, and then the um, remaining 40 cents is what we basically operate on to pay for our equipment, all the ovens, all the refrigerators, all the trucks that deliver food, 11 of them now, all the gas, um, all of our indirect costs the district bills us to operate in our kitchens. People do not realize that for that $3.50, we have to serve a freshly prepared meal made from scratch, ideally, someday, <laughs> locally sourced, and tastes great and looks good. And I'm telling you, it's a challenge. Um, but I feel like in the last 10 years, we've done a great job. And I can't tell you how many times I've had students transfer into our district and they tell their parents how great lunch is compared to neighboring districts. And I'm gonna say the reason why we have been able to do what we've done is the way that we purchase. So I've, I've sent out a little infographic that Kelsey, is, works for us, she's sitting over there, okay, uh, so made. <clears throat> We basically are changing the way school lunch is done in large districts. I'm not saying that any district can do this, but I'm saying large districts can do this. If you have a warehouse, you cut out the middleman, and that's what we've done. And it started in 2007. I was hired in November, and I was told by the next school year, we're gonna open a warehouse to distribute food to all our schools. Our warehouse was vacant. It literally had desks and chairs sitting in their freezer box that had been vacant for 10 years. We moved everything out, got those freezers working again. There was no refrigerator. And 
I started looking at our volume reports and how much food we purchased because I came from the restaurant world where I ran one restaurant and then eventually I was a regional manager, but I saw the volume. I said earlier, 47,000 meals a day. I said, why would I pay a broadline distributor to deliver to us when I can buy from General Mills and I can buy from Tyson and I can buy from these companies? I save 25 to 30% on my food costs and I spend that on the kids. And that's what we do. And we're really good at it, actually. I'm quite proud of our crew. Um, what else do I want to say about that? Um, so over the last 10 years, we started in 2008, we opened that warehouse. In 2009, we got a grant to build a refrigerator box. When that box was installed, we thought now we can do fresh produce. And what's a refrigerator box, just for, to visualize? Is that a humongous box? Yeah, or? you could drive a forklift in. Yeah, it's quite large. Um, but as soon as we built it, it wasn't large enough because that's what everybody always says. You always underestimate the size of your refrigeration. We started, and I remember the first farmer that ever called me was Miller's, Kurt Miller from Miller Citrus Grove in Penryn, California. And he said he had called a bunch of school districts and he was tired of sitting around in farmer's markets all day on Saturday. He thought, I could sell all my stuff at one time to school districts. Somebody would just listen to me. And I said, what's your pricing? What's your insurance? And I said, hey, I'm game. So we started buying from him. And the kids went crazy. They had never had mandarins because they were so expensive. But I could buy them from him for less. And he would deliver them the day after he picked them. They were so good. So that just kind of started our farm to school program. And then um, I thought, how am I going to find farmers? And we started looking online and started making connections, going to farmers markets. And now we have a slew of farmers that we buy from. We pretty much are pretty farmer loyal. When we have a Miller, um, Miller Citrus Grove, and he d delivers all my mandarins, I don't really look for another citrus uh, mandarin grower. Now I'm looking for a pear grower. Um, we just found a grape grower, and now we're looking for a tomato grower. I mean, we try to find one. We stay, there's a lot of bids and procurement um, thresholds required in school meals for federal funds. So we try to stay under our procurement requirements and we purchase direct, so we don't have to go out to bid, we just go out to quotes. Do you have a mile radius that you have to stay in within or want to stay in within, or does that We matter? have a goal of 250 miles, um, but we've gone outside that, and um, just, and it's, it's grown into more than just farmers now. Now it's manufacturers that are in Sacramento, bakeries that are in Sacramento, tortilla companies in Elk Grove, um, Pacific Coast producers, uh, it's, it's grown into the more local we can do, the less we pay on freight. And um, one year I thought, wow, we buy so many apples from Farmington Fresh in Stockton. And I calculated what our volume was and how much we were paying in freight to just have them bring it 30 minutes up from Stockton to our south uh, warehouse in Sacramento. And it would be a $90,000 savings if we could just send one of our guys in our trucks down there to pick it up. So now every Friday we pick up our own apples. We save 90,000. That's 90,000 I can use for pineapples, blueberries, strawberries, watermelon. If your kids are going to our schools, they're having that on the salad bar. And I'm proud of that. And um, that's our farm to school in a nutshell. Um, what, we've what, we've struggled for, what we've struggled with is vegetables. <laughs> um, kids don't love their vegetables. We did go out for a great USDA um, farm to school grant 
in partnership with Food Literacy and Soilborn Farms. And um, it was a school nutrition um, grant. We applied for the grant, but pretty much gave the funds to Food Literacy and Soilborn to help us with that missing component the farm to school link with kids. We were procuring all this great farm to school, but we weren't telling the kids about it and why it was important to eat it. And we really rely on these people here. <laughs> no pressure. Um, to try to help us teach our kids that, that connection. Um, and with our central kitchen, we kind of felt like we came to a roadblock after 10 years. How can we get the entrees? to be more freshly prepared. We've done a great job at our high schools because we have full service kitchens and a lot of staff at those high schools because the enrollment allows for it and the meal count at those schools allow for more staff. But at an elementary school where there might be three staff cooking for 500 kids, they can't do a scratch prepared meal in a few hours. And that's the vision for our kitchen. That kitchen opens next year at this time. So we're really excited about that. I'm not going to overpromise and say magically we're going to open the doors and 50,000 meals are going to be made from scratch. It's probably going to be another 10-year process, but we're in it for the long haul. So that's our vision. That's great. That's a great vision. And and you're how, one of how many school districts, Nicholas, in the in California? How many not, school districts are in yeah, California? Yeah, and I'm going to ask this to Nicholas because he's like at the statewide point of view there. Yeah, there's a thousand school districts and there's over six thousand schools. Yeah. And, okay. It's a lot. It's a lot. So <laughs> yes, as one school district that's doing gangbusters, and that's a that's an example to emulate. It sounds like. So from your point of view, with the the California Department of Food and Ag, how do you want? How is it going? Like, what's your role in terms of getting things like this across the state? And and just a summary of efforts that you're you're doing to get that to happen. Yeah, so when I started with the Department of Food and Ag, like I said, I was really scaling up from a, like a community scale, regional scale effort to this giant state. And so I started by going on a, a listening tour. And there was a number of ways that I reached out to people, people that I had heard on the news, people who I knew locally. Uh, like on Instagram, I just started following hashtag farm to school. And then if you showed up and you were in California, I sent you a DM, so hi. <laughs> Uh, same thing with our newsletter. On our newsletter, when I started, I just put big picture of me. Hi, everyone. I'm Nick Anisich. Please respond to this email and let me know what you're doing so I can help figure out what the best practices are across the state. So I went on a statewide listening tour and it, I met with over 140 organizations in the basically nine, nine months that I have been on the listening tour and identified all these best practices and all these obstacles that have come up for, for schools. Um, the Department of Food and Ag really cares about schools, one, because we know that there's a food insecurity challenge for all of our students, um, you know, like 75% free and reduced rate, you know, not uncommon, unfortunately, across the state. So we want to make sure that all of our kids have access to healthy fruits and vegetables. Um, and then also we want to make sure that uh, all of our California produce is getting utilized throughout these school meals. If you followed anything with the tariff battles that are going on, that really impacts California farmers. Um, that is not my purview, of course, international trade on walnuts and things like that. But I do know that schools uh, are doing over a billion meals per year and that uh, that is a very safe, secure, stable market for our farmers. And if we can build more of these direct relationships, or if we can help farmers get connected to distributors who are working honestly to support them, then we can really support those farmers as well. So 
uh, with the department and the farm to school network we are working to identify resources find more resources advocate for more resources for practitioners and farmers and all these people who are involved and then make sure that um, if we do get funding for a farm to school grant statewide if we do if we are able to create some sort of policy internally that it's actually going to meet the needs of these unique districts because every district is different great um, and then the private sector, I always think it's interesting in terms of, um, you know, some, some areas of the public sector, you know, uh, healthcare and education are hard to break into and to navigate. But it sounds like Revolution Foods has done so far so good. And uh, you've got a lot of venture capital funding, which I think is a, is a big deal. And two women who have put this company together, getting a lot of venture capital funding, that in itself is really impressive. So Kirsten, I wanted you to give us, you know, in the summary that you have, um, how you and your co-founder, Kristen, right, founded Revolution. And so far in the 13 years, I guess the lessons you've learned in growing it, you know, navigating through this sector, and I guess current plans, it sounds like you're expanding geographically, obviously, and you have some new services and offerings beyond just serving the food. So, in a nutshell. <laughs> 13 years in a nutshell. Um, so, yeah, we started the company 13 years ago, my co-founder, Kristen, and I, um, both had kind of come from the education sector. I was a teacher, she was in sort of teacher recruitment. Um, and we met in business school at UC Berkeley. And um, as we were there, we spent a lot of time just kind of looking at the, at the intersection of education and food and looking at you know, what's, what's going on in our country you know, with food and education and our obesity epidemic and kids being unhealthier than ever before and, and all of those statistics that we don't need to share because I know everybody in this room knows about them. Um, but one of the things that we saw was that was kind of looking at you know schools both locally and across the country increasingly not having kitchens, not having the ability to produce food. I mean, it's obviously a long, long process to get a, um, a fully functional kitchen, a place, especially in places where those have kind of been you know, removed or never built in, in schools. And so we were, we looked at, you know, how could we provide a solution to schools who weren't able to cook on site or cook from scratch on site by creating a central kitchen essentially that can, you know, then service a number of different schools and school districts. Um, so we, we started with our first kitchen in Oakland. Um, we've raised, you know, money over the years for growth um, from venture capitalists, also from, um, from foundations and from, you know, Kellogg Foundation is one of our investors and um, the Emerson Collective is one of our investors. So, so foundation funding as well as, um, as sort of private sector funding that have helped us to grow and replicate our model from, you know, Oakland down to LA and then across the country. So we're now in, um, we serve schools in 15 states, um, including, you know, in Texas, Colorado, um, up and down the East Coast. And it's been, you know, it's, it's really, it's, it's almost like being in California, we're so lucky with how much availability there is of fresh local produce. And then you go to a place like, you know, Washington DC in the middle of winter, and it's really hard to, to do some of the stuff that you can do in California. Um, but, you know, so our, our model is slightly different in the different regions that we, that we work in, but our primary goal um, and is to partner with schools and school districts and create solutions that work for them. So in some places, like in some charter schools that are serving kids out of a, you know, a, a table in a hallway because they don't have any, you know, any multi-purpose room, let alone cafeteria, um, you know, we'll provide sort of a full service offering of freshly prepared um, meals that are ready to just hand out and serve to the kids and they're eating them in the, you know, 
patio or wherever they're eating, um, all the way to, you know, we'll provide individual products to schools like an after-school supper program or a unitized breakfast program for a, a school that wants to put in place a breakfast in the classroom program but doesn't have the warehouse or the kitchen to put it together themselves. Um, we will also do bulk service with schools. So if a school wants to have, you know, just kind of pans of enchiladas delivered or, you know, enchiladas and brown rice and black beans and, you know, they're all designed to be fully compliant meals so they can provide those meals for free to kids, we'll provide that as an offering. So we, we have a, basically a very, we, have, we, we focus a lot on the, on the sort of product design part of it where we go out and we work with kids really closely. We collect a lot of information from students about what flavors do they like, what, um, you know, our chefs are always sitting with kids and, and doing taste tests and, and figuring out, you know, what's the, how are we going to get kids to like and, you know, want the brown rice rather than the white rice and how are we going to make the vegetables taste good and how are we going to, and then we take those and we put them into our kitchen and we can kind of mix and match them in a lot of different ways for different kinds of programs, whether it's an after school program, a summer meal program, a, you know, a full kind of cafeteria lunch or breakfast program. Great. Now that leads perfectly into the question I have for uh, the next panelist here, Amber, you know, uh, finding out what kids like to eat, don't like, and educating them, right, making them more food literate. Um, so, uh, and then Todd, too, You're, you'll be next. I think you two really work hands-on with students, so that's why I brought you on board to find out, you know, that in terms of educating what they learn from you and what you're learning from them in, in food literacy, you know, the importance of teaching food literacy to students, um, you know, how you impress that upon, you know, students, schools, you know, your clients, uh, so to speak. And then in terms of, you know, the lessons that you have learned working with students, what, what do they respond to, what they don't respond to, you know, what they find appealing and not, how do you, uh, how you work with them to, to make them more food literate and more, uh, you know, uh, uh, open to eating everything. Absolutely. Yeah, so the most important thing is that kids aren't picky eaters they are uneducated eaters. It's like sliding a multiplication problem in front of a kindergartner and expecting them to understand what to do with that. That's what it is when you're giving them something like broccoli that they've never seen before. It, they need education, uh, they need food literacy. And so taste education is one of the most important places that we start. And we try to get our kids to be what we call food adventurers. So we're trying to get them excited to explore new and different things because a lot of times adults do use words like picky um, and you can get attention for that as a kid, right? But what if the adults who show up in your school are gonna give you attention when you eat your fruits and vegetables. And so we get really excited. Uh, sometimes we wear vegetable costumes. Uh, we have a cheer and we show up with joy and we really enthusiastically work to inspire these kids to taste something new. So we, we do two things. We try to get them shook out of their comfort zone uh, by showing up with new and different fruits and vegetables every week for them to just taste. And so that might be bok choy one week, it might be cactus the next week, it might be kiwi. Uh, and that's how they become food adventurers. But with our recipes, because we're asking them to cook, kids are more likely to eat things that they've spent time hands-on cooking themselves. So with our recipes, we start with a peanut butter sandwich. We start with the familiar. And we swap out the jelly for fresh fruit slices. 
but we talk about why we're doing that. And we bring the kids on this journey with us to the brown rice and kale salad at the end, but we don't start there. So um, it's really about exposure and repeat exposure. And that's why working in, in partnership with the school lunch program has been so critical for us because we can serve them something like rainbow carrots uh, for produce of the day. We can then make a beautiful recipe with that. And then they go to lunch and they see it on the salad bar and they're more likely to try it. So we're, this repeat exposure and the building of healthy habits is really what we're aiming for. Just curious if there's like a, I don't know, stumbling block, but there's some, there's some vegetable or fruit where that has been the one that has been, you were so proud when they finally like ate it or liked it. Is there one? We have so many great examples. So um, two years, we have a, an annual veggie of the year contest. Uh, which just took place, and we're announcing the winner on Saturday. Uh, and uh, two years ago, Beet won, and the year before that, Nopales. So our kids, you know, the first year was carrot, and or the first year was sweet potato, and then carrot, so they've built to this. And the, we take it to the same schools, so you can kind of tell in what the kids are selecting how food adventurous they've become. That's great. All right, my last question, individual question for you, Todd, kind of a similar one, you know, education, and you really get the kids down into the dirt, right, in terms of gardening, agriculture, and I thought it's interesting, uh, Burbank Urban Gardener Bug, um, it's something where you are also emphasizing, you know, you could, you could be a gardener, and this could be maybe a career future, and then also food literacy, food activism, sounds like that's something where that's happened a lot. I have it actually, I have a specific question about that for everybody, but I, I guess just the summary question of what, uh, what lessons you impart to your students and what you've learned in your experience with Bug. Yeah, well, in a way I feel kind of in the same boat as all these folks and, and then also on the flip side, in the educational world, getting kids to understand where their food's coming from, what goes into growing their food, and to realize why and how maybe not all foods are available all the time. Um, so that when they come in seasonally, so that if we say shop local, um, they have a why to it, why they can understand um, you know, what's available at the farmer's market when things show up um, and not get really mad or say, well, why can't I just have peaches all year long or pineapples or something like that and we have pineapples growing in our greenhouse and they take four years to grow and so <laughs> we go there and we say here's a pineapple Mr. McPherson can I have that pineapple it's like you're a freshman you can plant a pineapple come back when you graduate we'll give you that one pineapple so that's pretty damn cool that there's pineapples in the store every single day like how does that happen let's look at that let's look at the food system and, and see what's going on um, so I I kind of come at it as like really getting them involved in the process, really literally and figuratively getting out, getting dirty, um, understanding why you have what you have when you have it. Um, we have an awesome climate. We're all spoiled. We can get tons of local food, which is awesome. So it's a pretty easy place to start. And then also paint it with a little broader stroke to get them involved in the agricultural system as a whole, because here we are in California, in Sacramento, in the middle of some of the most fertile land that exists on this planet with a massive agricultural economy. And we have huge demographics of people who are completely unaware, uneducated, and get left out by the opportunities that that economy provides. Um, and so it's kind of this perfect place, I feel, to um, 
get moving and get inspiring, get engaging um, youth in this so they can come up through a program, hopefully, you know, like Amber's and they can be food adventures and they can come in and understand why. And there was this big gap between a lot of elementary and middle school gardens and then kind of picked up at community college and then we have like UC Davis, one of the best ag schools in the world here. Sac State has some great sustainability programs, one of the first environmental studies programs in the nation, I believe. And yet there's no place for these kids who get don't like to be inside like I didn't like to be kind of excited about their food, like their school garden and that one teacher that stayed after school all the time and did that stuff with them. But then where do they build the competency, the skills, the knowledge to be able to take that next step? So we're at the Burbank Urban Garden, the Urban Ag Academy, really trying to bridge that um, and get kids involved in, in this process. Like, what is a food desert? Why does it exist? What does it look like around us? We can go one mile on Florin Road and hit 11 fast food places, and a, there are grocery stores, so we're not technically in a food desert, but looking at that, looking at access, and then the kind of activism piece, like, let's be a solution to that problem. Let's grow the food and then get it to our neighbors, get it to ourselves, understand why maybe just for ourselves, like it tastes good, it's healthier. One way to get kids not to do something is have adults tell them, especially teenagers, like, why'd everyone say eat your fruits and vegetables, right? Like, I don't know, they said it, so I didn't do it. All right, cool, let's learn why. This might make sense. Bring some other people in, taste some good stuff, build on prior knowledge, and then kind of get engaged and involved. So that's my approach with it and it seems to be working okay and it's fairly well <laughs> well good well good uh, awesome all right so uh so we talked a lot about what's going on in sacramento the state uh and now i have a question about uh the federal uh rules and regulations i guess there's the department of ag is uh a big overseer and i i was when i was doing my research i saw just recently washington dc and five states including california are suing the agriculture secretary over changes in the school lunch program, basically easing the rules that were championed by Michelle Obama when she was first lady. And they're accusing him of ignoring, this is the Ag Secretary Sonny Perdue, they're accusing Purdue of ignoring dietary guidelines and scientific research when he allowed fewer whole grains and more sodium in meals uh, back on the menu. Now, I guess I just read recently the federal government recently replied, the states have no power to sue over the new rules. Um, so that's, that's what I read the latest. Obviously, there's contention between California and the feds on a general basis, but I was wondering now in particular, um, it sounds like there's federal rules and regulations that you have to follow, uh, keep track of. Uh, so especially with right now, um, what are the positives and the negatives in what, how the, the the federal, um, you know, the feds are regulating and managing school breakfast and lunch programs, and how do you, I don't know, deal with it? <laughs> so who would like to start? Uh, Kirsten. Yeah, I mean, so, so what's interesting is that the federal government since the early 1940s, I think, has been, you know, running the national school lunch program and then has added on other programs like the breakfast program and after school meal programs. And, and you know, they've always kind of made at least a, an attempt to base the guidelines that that federal funding is based on, on, you know, dietary guidelines on the, the current, you know, the, the most current dietary um, research that's out there. And I think what's happened you know, what's happened over the years is that the, the 
dietary guidelines that the regulations are based on are very heavily influenced by the industry. And so then when they get to the political process, they get even more influenced by the industry. And so then you end up having things like, you know, eight ounces of fluid milk required at every meal because the dairy lobby is so strong. And it's despite the fact that there is nutrition research out there that says that that's not necessarily the best thing for all kids. And so you end up with this, this kind of system that's, that's both kind of lagging in terms of the best dietary research, but it's also heavily influenced by industry. And, and, it's, and then obviously it's heavily politicized now. You know, it's, it's become like, if you're a Democrat, you like, one kind of, you like one kind of thing about nutrition, and if you're a Republican, you like a different thing. It's like it's sort of crazy that, to think that that's what's happened to our school food system, is that it's, it's become a red-blue issue. Um, and so because there tends to be this, you know, the, the current administration tends to be more like, you can't tell us what to do. They want to take away regulations, even though those regulations are based on already very watered-down current science. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that's, and this is all my personal perspective, of course, but, um, but it's, so I think that's where states like California are now stepping up and saying enough is enough. We've got to at least hold to the, you know, the best that we can, you know, create as a federal government and not, not step backwards in terms of, you know, what, what those guidelines are. And it's, it's pretty basic things around whole grains and that's, you know, very, um, evidence-backed that whole grains are good for you and you know that um, th all of the different things that are that are being kind of rolled back by the federal government are are you know backed by really good science um, and already you know not the best that they could be and so to me it just feels like it's a political game so for the past what is it two years or so three whatever since 2016 has that made it harder for revolution foods to get what you want food-wise into schools, or um, you just work state by state and um, it depends on the state? Yeah, I mean, what's been interesting for us is that we've always had a really high nutrition standard and food quality standard, and so, with, and we've always been above and beyond what the federal guidelines have required, so it's, so we've, it hasn't, it, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it hasn't impacted us. It, it hasn't impacted us much because you know, when the new guidelines came in, we were like, okay, well, we're already doing all of that. And then when they rolled back, schools don't have to not provide whole grains just because the federal guidelines say you don't have to. So, you know, most of the schools that we work with tend to be, you know, looking at what's the best thing that we, what's the best food that we could be providing for our kids. And so it hasn't, it hasn't had a huge impact on us. I think it has a big impact on me just because I care about what is provided to kids across the country and and what's kind of required and knowing that some schools are going to just do what's required and not go above and beyond it anyone else have a diana or nick all right yeah diana how about you what's your take on i think she articulated it much better than me um i think for me i would take it a step further and i really don't know how revolution foods deals with this but the school meal program is supplemented by the USDA commodity program. Do you guys get commodities? If you sponsor, okay. Um, which is a program that was developed, <clears throat> I don't know, back in the days when farmers had an overabundance of products and USDA would purchase them and then divert them to schools, which sounds like a great idea back in the day, I believe. Um, but now what's happening is they are going, USDA is going out to bid with manufacturers, growers, 
and purchasing a list of commodity items and offering these commodities, and it's a dollar figure based on how many meals you serve in the prior year, um, offering districts money. It's like monopoly money. So in our district, we get 1.7 million every year. It's a lot of money. It's a, it's a big portion of our food budget. And what we do is we have to allocate in February every year where we want to send, uh, well, how we want to spend that monopoly money. I want to spend, you know, two truckloads of chicken to Tyson. I want to spend um, beef to Don Lee. I want to send it there. And then these manufacturers have a shopping list of things that we can buy that's further processed for school meals. When we're building a kitchen, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to spend that money because I want raw ingredients, but that's not offered. That's a problem. Can you get a so, so Oakland Unified, and it's funny that you're from Oakland, gets something called cash in lieu. They get a check instead of the commodities. I believe the entire state of Kansas gets it. And Gilroy, I don't know if we confirmed whether Gilroy gets it, um, but we want it. And we're asking for it. And I want Kelsey to speak just a couple seconds. Kelsey's our nutrition specialist. She's advocating. She went to Cap to Cap last year at D.C. to advocate for our district. Because I don't think I can advocate for the state of California. Like, I think that's too big to chew off. And I don't think USDA would do it for us. But I, we want to ruffle enough feathers that maybe they'll do it for us. Um, because... I'm going to lose that 1.7 million in my food budget if I can't spend it on raw ingredients. And I know that some of those legislators or some people at USDA and CDE have said, but you can allocate some of that money to DOD, our Department of Defense Fresh Produce Program. Well, I've tried that. And that produce isn't direct from the farms. That produce, I'm lucky, is edible by the time we get it. Um, sliced apples may still be coming from Farmington Fresh, where I go and pick them up, but they went to three different places before they came to me. So they're two weeks old or a week and a half old by the time I get them, and I got to serve them in a day's time. That's how that works. Doesn't, it's not efficient, and we don't want that anymore. We just want to be able to go buy from California or local if we can. And it supports a local economy. So I, we have this infographic here on everything we're trying to do. Helps Sacramento, creates jobs. We've created already, I said on here, 26 jobs. But since then, we've hired 26 full-time jobs um, just from procure, procuring differently. And we can put that on our <clears throat> website uh, along with the podcast that we'll put up the infographic. Yeah, sure. So, okay. so I go back to why would I buy chicken from Arkansas when I can buy it from Livingston? Why? I can buy it cheaper from Livingston. We can cook it ourselves, and it's fresher for our kids. And those processors back in Arkansas, they're a made-for-profit company, and not 100% of that chicken, I'm sorry, not 100% of that chicken um, is 100% white meat chicken or dark meat chicken. You know, they add fillers to make the cost better because um, a lot of school districts are struggling to pay for things, and that's just not good enough for our kids. And um, so that's my advocacy. I wanted Kelsey to speak up because she's done a lot of work with this. 
Um, she's talked to Garamendi's office. She talked to Matsui's office today. And we're getting a lot of um, political buy-in to help us make, move that needle. All right, and then before I get the other panelists' take, I do I want to encourage uh, audience to go up to the mic and, and line up for questions if you if you have some, and then we'll start with those. So let's see. So the other sophist, Amber. I, I wanted to weigh in on this on a local example because at Food Literacy Center we look at changing food behaviors and we look at the lens of changing knowledge, changing attitude, and ultimately behavior. And when you hear about federal policies being rolled back. Um, at the local level, we passed a school wellness policy in partnership with the district, with nutrition services, with other nonprofits, with parents, um, and we, we put a big step forward to kick junk food out of the school day. But where we're having struggles is with compliance and getting adults to buy in to not giving kids junk food. And so when you hear about this happening at a federal level, it, it, it's the same attitude, right? Where we feel like something is being taken away from us and that we're being mean to kids by not letting them have treats, right? And I'll give you an example. Um, there was a parent who came up to me after an event and she said, we are really struggling at our school. She said, we got the wellness policy, the principal passed it out. Um, we got the list of the approved snacks. We're all super smart people. We know what to do and what not to do. But when it comes to my turn to bring the soccer snacks or whatever, um, there is so much pressure to be the cool parent that I went out and bought Oreos. And every other parent is doing the same thing. And it's really hard to bust out of that. And at Food Literacy Center, the way we view that is that it's really easy to give a kid junk food. Really easy. What requires a lot of bravery is showing up with vegetables. And our kids, they're, we work with a lot of very low income, food insecure families. And what our kids tell us about us coming every week with vegetables is that they notice that we're not giving up on them because we're showing them that we care about their health. We taught this um, semester a, a class to fourth, fifth, and sixth graders at one of our schools, and we taught them a class about the wellness policy. And we said, you know, what kid in this class likes junk food? All the hands go up. And then we said, who in here wants to be healthy? Every hand goes up. And as we discussed this, they said to us, we want to be healthy, and we want adults to tell us how, and we want them to make it easy. So it's really on us as the adults to keep showing up with those vegetables. And when we roll back policies or we ignore policies, you know, they're, they're there because we're trying to protect kids' health. And I know I'm going long, but I have one last example, and that's the canary in the coal mine. I don't know if you guys have seen the recent news stories, but there is a teenage boy in the UK who went blind and deaf from eating only junk food. And this uh, medical experts were weighing in and saying, this is the first time that we've seen junk food affecting the nervous system. We've known about diabetes, we've known about um, heart disease, uh, obesity, all these chronic diseases. Now it's starting to affect the nervous system. So 
when we give our kids junk food, we're making them sick. So it's really important that all of these programs, you know, that we as adults are, are showing up and getting excited. And I know I'm preaching to the choir, but it's a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. And that's the point. Get the word out. Get the word out. N Nicholas, I wanted to ask you a question, or Nick, uh, the same question, because, you know, you're on the state level. Uh, and to tie it into what's going on or what maybe just happened with the state legislature that ended a week before last or last week, um, if there's anything there that was really good in terms of you know state regulations or boosting farm to fork, um, one thing I did want to ask about was I was reading um, Assemblywoman uh, Celia Aguiar-Curry, who's here in the Yolo County area in Lake and Napa, introduced a bill, at least earlier this year, that she wanted to put the, the first ever organic to school pilot program, uh, but I don't know if it passed. So I was just wondering, it, oh, it did not pass. It's tabled. But I'm just wondering in terms of like, just quickly before we go to the, the audience questions, uh, on a state level, you know, legislature, what are they doing to help out on this? Yeah, so thank you for asking that. Uh, this year, this term, there were actually three different school lunch uh, bills that were proposed. And if you follow the legislature, you know that's normally not a good thing to have three separate asks for the same uh, solution, right? It's three, three solutions to the same problem. You, you want them combined into one. Well, I personally, as a state employee, do not want them, uh, like, I have no opinion on each of these bills until they become law, right? But so I can educate you on what they are. So there was the first bill was Aguilar Curry, and that was the organic to school pilot. So that was advocating for, I think it was like $2 million to um, incentivize uh, procuring organic food for school because organic food can be, in some cases, more expensive. It was meant to incentivize that, that program on a pilot level. Uh, there was also a bill that was promoting climate-friendly meals, and that one was focused on uh, plant-based meat replacements. So uh, using mushrooms and other types of legumes and things to um, to replace meat in school meals. That was also asking for, I think that one was like 25 cents additionally per meal to incentivize that. And then there was a third bill which was focused on if you serve uh, free school, if you serve free school meals through the community eligibility program, plus you serve breakfast in the classroom or you offer breakfast in the classroom, then you could get additional reimbursement on California grown products. So each of those three bills was brought from different organizations and agencies. And so, um, you know, you can, look, you can look up those bills. I can't remember the numbers of each of them right now. But if you look them up, you can find the people who are organizing and you can get in contact with them if you're interested. I know uh, Friends of the Earth sponsored the uh, plant-based meal replacement or plant-based meat replacement. And then uh, I think it was Next Gen Policy or the NRDC. What is that? Do you remember what that stands for? National Resource Defense Council sponsored the organics bill, and then um, the California Food Policy Advocates sponsored the universal meals and breakfast meal. So um, if you're looking to get involved in any of those movements or take part in those conversations, you can look up any of those organizations and, and jump in. Um, you can also sign up for our California Farm to School newsletter. Just honestly, just come talk to me at the end of this. If you're on the podcast, email me. You can put my email in the notes, and I can add you to the list. And there I will put relevant information in order to educate you on each of the policies so that you can get in touch with people if that's what you're interested in doing. Great, thank you. All right, how about we take the first question at the mic? 
Hi, thank you all for everything you're doing. It's amazing. My question is also related to USDA rule proposals to change SNAP um, eligibility requirements. Do you guys know that if that if if those rules indeed go through, if you guys will be affected with your funding? And just, and uh, explain what SAP. Uh, the, what's the acronym for? So who would like to take that? Diana. Yeah, I'm familiar with that. There's a lot of conversation about that, like how would that hurt us financially, but it's very hard to calculate that. Um, can, you just, our, can you describe what SAP So means? SNAP is SNAP. basically the CalFresh, foods, uh, formerly food stamps. Um, of our 81 schools, 58 of them qualify for community eligibility provision. We switched. Um, and added 14 more schools last year. So we were formally provisioned two schools where kids ate free, now we're community eligibility. Basically what that does is families can qualify for free meals if those students are enrolled in those schools um, based on how many families are fosters, homeless, or um, SNAP, Medicaid, Medi-Cal. Um, what was your question, I'm sorry? So they've proposed rules to change the requirements so that a lot of kids on free meal, school meals would get bumped off. Um, and I'm wondering if you guys know if your funding would be. Right, so what we don't know is if they change like the income level um, for SNAP, we don't know what people's income were when they qualified. So it's kind of hard to know how many people would fall off, but I know it would affect us for sure. Um, every four years we have to re-qualify those 58 schools. We'll be coming up on that in two years, and um, some schools may fall off. We may not be able to keep them on community eligibility provision. So yeah, it would hurt us and our families. Amber. Uh, and I'll add that um, Food Literacy Center is not alone. Uh, Soilborne Farms, Health Education Council, many of the nonprofits that we partner with that provide cooking, gardening, food, nutrition types of education, um, most of it, per us provide it for free to these schools and to these kids because we know that um, budgets are very tight and so we're completely reliant on donations from the community to support our programs. So SNAP eligibility wouldn't necessarily directly affect our funding, but it would certainly likely increase the number of kids who need programs like ours and there's only so much to go around. All right, next question. Uh, so first of all, thank you everyone for being here on this panel. Um, uh, I am um, a board member of the Davis Joint Unified School District. And I have a comment and a couple questions. So my first comment is, so the, the bill that was discussed earlier is um, uh, California Assembly Bill 479, and that's the school climate-friendly uh, meal program. And it's uh, right now it's been through the Assembly. It's in Senate appropriations, and um, if we could get it passed, that would be wonderful. So if if people want to write your senator about passing that, that would be wonderful. Um, so my question, though, is I was really impressed with, with, what Saxony, with what Sac City Unified is doing in terms of their nutrition services. And as a small district, we have issues with, um, so with procurement and distribution, and we can't do it on the scale that obviously you do. So what advice would you have for a smaller district in terms of being able to 
partner with uh, farms and so if we can't buy as much produce or um, can we you know what, what advice would you have in, in terms of being able to do the same sorts of things that that your district is doing all right Diana <laughs> Um, I think in the smaller districts, you would need to, and this would be the food service director, would need to have a very open line of communication with their produce company and select, when you're going out for bid for produce, select a company that aligns with your local vision. Um, there are large produce companies that buy from wherever, you don't know where it's coming from, and then there's smaller companies I mean, I don't mean to put a shout out, but like um, Produce Express here in Sacramento, they're too small for us. But they really service the farm to school um, at the restaurants in Sacramento in a great way. They would be someone great to partner with for school, a smaller school district. There are other produce companies like them that have really tapped into that um, local procurement. They've realized the same way we have that it's actually more cost beneficial for them and I would try to find the right produce company. I think that's everything to have a great farm to school program. Thank you. I have a follow up question about that. Uh, in terms of the location where the school district is, I mean, Yolo County is surrounded by farms. Um, for schools that are in, or districts that are in Central Valley or you know, the, the Bay Area that have access to farmers down the road, uh, is that something where they can go really direct or does it depend on size or what are the, co the constrictions or the should more school districts be doing that kind of thing? I'll start with you Diana if you have that answer. Yeah. I'll tell you most school districts don't want to do what we're doing. It's hard. It's really hard. It's a lot of work. We are we learned it on the fly. We're not distributor people. I came from the restaurant business. The people in my office weren't distributor people. We're now custom, we're building our own software programs to serve the needs that we need. We're using technology in a way that we've never done before. Um, I don't know if a lot of school districts are willing to take that on, but I think large school districts should be thinking about it if they have a warehouse. Um, unfortunately, I have only worked in one school district, it's Sacramento City, so I don't have a lot of experience about other districts, their challenges, I just know our challenges and we have them. Um, and I do want to share our message one day. I've always said that one day when we're actually delivering the meal that we promised, I will share our message with other districts because I do think it's important that they know it. I think the most important piece is we are a business operating in a school district and we need to hire people that have that mindset that literally think in terms of food costs, labor cost. Are we signing off on our invoices? Are we getting what we paid for? Are we watching our bid pricing? Um, I'm not sure that a lot of school districts think in that way, and nutrition programs need to. All right, Nicholas and then Kirsten. Yeah, I just wanted to say that there's a lot of small districts that are doing local procurement just right next door. In winters, they do direct purchasing with a bunch of local farmers, and they've, they've found a way to make it work. What's challenging in a lot of districts, it's you're the food service director, and you have like one other staff member. <laughs> that can be hard. 
but also very inspiring. And just like Diana said, it's hard work. So as people are figuring out all of these processes to make farm to school procurement happen, like you're learning on the fly and the food service directors through the network are able to reach out to each other and share best practices as they go. So I'd love to share contact information with you. And the other thing I wanna say is that farm to school encompasses three different buckets, we call them. The first one is local food procurement, which really requires your food nutrition services staff to get on board and, and tackle these big procurement challenges. Uh, but then there's also education in cafeteria and classrooms. So you can be connecting that food and ag education and even going cradle to career K through beyond with Todd's programs and CTE in order to connect uh, the educational pathway. And then the last one is experiential learning. So if you have a school garden or if you go on a farm tour, like all of these buckets are challenging on their own and getting them to work in concert is really the what we're trying to get to that finish line to establish what the roadmap is to that point. So if you're having trouble in food and nutrition services, if there are big hurdles, that doesn't mean that you can't still advance farm to school in these other areas that are just as valuable. So don't feel defeated if you're like slow on procurement at first keep going in these other areas and continue to build a positive relationship with your food services staff so that when they are ready and when there's a really easy success success story that's ready to go, you can start building those achievements together. And Kirsten. I was just gonna say, I think this is a really interesting example of there. there is so little sort of coordination and best practice sharing between school districts in terms of best practices and um, you know everything from sourcing to procurement to you're building your own software you know it's it's um, and I was going to give a shout out to an organization called Food Corps which is a, a national nonprofit that's doing that's trying to kind of pull together some of the best practices across the sector um, in turn and their and their whole effort is called reworking school lunch um, so I would just encourage people to look that up and see the work that they're doing because it's um, they're trying to get you know, just best practices and alignment and actual kind of work streams going around procurement best practices, farm to school best practices, supply chain best practices, you know, food development best practices. Um, just because there are 50,000 school districts across the country doesn't mean there have to be 50,000 different ways of serving kids school lunch. Um, and so I think there's just some, some really interesting work out there that's happening on that front. All right, Todd, it's a little... Todd needs to speak up. Well, I just wanted to weigh in on Food Corps. I was actually a Food Corps Vista through AmeriCorps. For a short time, they piloted like a summer Vista program, and I was out um, not in urban area in rural Montana, pretty much the opposite, but running and working at some, some farm to school stuff. And the trainings that we did and what they're bringing together is really awesome. And I hope one day maybe to pull a Vista in to my program so that we can kind of take it to the next level. We have a few acres that we can expand on our campus, and I hope that you guys can free up that cash so that my <laughs> students can pitch you guys and get that real business experience. But that's what we do with CTE is try and you know, create real world opportunities. So yeah, we have a little school garden. I mean, we have an acre, we can grow a lot. We talk with local businesses, but I would love to set my students up to come and sit down with you and say, hey, at least we're gonna pitch you on an acre of peppers, you know, something, whatever it would be, and then play that out and see if it works and see if it makes sense for us on our production end and what kind of financially they're dealing with. And I think it's really exciting that we could actually, you know, see that in the future, that, you know, it could be part of it and it, kids get it. They assume we grow food in the garden and it goes to the cafeteria, 
but up until very recently, like that was actually illegal. And that's one of the biggest lead-ins to talking to kids about this. Um, they're like, what? Like, we grow the food and, and then we eat it, right? Like, duh. Like, no, that's breaking the law. Like, what the hell? And then, <laughs> then we can start talking. Um, and, and it's a great, you know, place to be. So, so Todd was making a direct pitch to Diana there. So Diana wants to respond. Well, we've always been interested in that kind of stuff. So let's talk. But we, we are at the point where we are asking farmers to do forward contracts. And um, we have asked some farmers, like, if you could grow this many acres or however many tomatoes, we will buy them all. And that, that helps them because then they have some sense of security that they know they have a buyer for their produce. So we're dabbling in that now. And we're starting with little mini tomatoes because kids love them. Um, we so, got yeah. you. <laughs> all right, next question at the mic. Hi, thank you all for uh, taking the time to be on this panel tonight. Um, I just had a quick question. Oftentimes in this kind of realm of farm to school, you hear a lot of discussion about the challenges. Um, if each of you could just go around and just bring up one very recent success, just a quick, simple example, um, that would be great. That was my last question actually on my list, but we can move it up. So uh, I guess, and, and then quickly, I know uh, we, are, we have a few more questions and I wanna make it at least time friendly for people have to drive back. So why don't we start, if we, if we want to, whoever's raising the mic right now and then go from there. Todd, we'll start with you. Success and yeah, success. We have a really easy one because we have an awesome district um, and a supportive staff. Um, and we grew. I love how he's schmoozing you, Diana. Yeah, hey. No comment. <laughs> so we grew this year a bunch of tomatoes and basil. And what are you going to do with a whole lot of basil? We needed to make pesto. And so we made it and tasted it with the kids. But at the end of last year, um, we went and talked to our food service director on site um, and said, yo, we got all this basil. You want to make pesto? Can we do something with it? And she was totally on board, um, which is cool. And so in the class that built the bed and then planted the basil, we harvested the basil and delivered it to the cafeteria. And then they made the pesto. And then a crew of kids came back at lunch and we, they tossed in some pasta and then we went and we handed it out. And the kids themselves went to all their friends and take advantage of peer pressure and were like, yo, taste this, we grew this, we did this. And it was gone instantly, you know, it was about 10 minutes, totally, you know, cleared. And now we've been invited back and there's actually a little side salad bar. They said, when we have stuff, bring it in. And so we're building that into our program to have that there. So the kids themselves who grew it are then the educators. And I think that that, there's a lot of power there and that's that leadership and empowerment and also really effective because we're suspect as adults, right? But when they're listening to each other and they do it, they trust it and they're gonna go and taste it. And so and that I was think pretty cool. Quickly, just in, in case of time, I did wanna say uh, the food activism, and we can talk about that later, but I did wanna point out in an article I read that UC Berkeley did on the whole farm to fork in Sacramento, uh, you had brought up an example about how your students became literally food activists. Uh, the city was passing or looking at urban gardening rules and a lot of your students stepped up, advocated, wrote letters, maybe testified in front of city council, was that? Yeah, we went in and participated with the urban ag ordinance that um, made it legal to grow 
uh, food within the city limits and actually sell that. And so that was a great time to be doing the work and then cross over into, hey, how do we make this you know, a real thing in the community around us? And again, create those solutions ourselves, look at the systems, look at their biases, be pissed off about it, yes, and then be motivated by that and, and to step in. And like, when it becomes, you know, when you're, you're just out like trying to get high school kids to garden, it's not that cool and it's not that sexy for most of them in the urban environment. Right? But when you're taking on bigger and broader systems and you're creating, you know, when you bring in the social justice element and when you're creating a solution and there's that power there that you're taking hold of and delivering that, then that means something totally different. Then all of a sudden it's like, this is our place and this is our garden, this is our community and we're gonna make this place better because of what we do. And that's a whole nother level that they come into and it's awesome, you know, to see it happen and then to see them out. The kids will be at the Farm to Fork Festival, quick shout out on Saturday. Um, Saturday. And my goal there is to just put them out and then kind of disappear into the festival and let them talk to the community about what they do because they all stand so much taller and straighter when, when they hear from people other than you know me and a few other select people that they see every day about it. Um, but it's, it's really cool. Awesome examples. What's another awesome example if someone wants to shout out about their organization? Amber? Sure. Um, I'm gonna go high level. The most exciting thing is happening. Uh, we are partnering with the school district, with the city, and with a local developer, the mill at Broadway, and we are building a food literacy cooking school on an elementary school campus that we will get, I know, it's really exciting. And we will get to move our nonprofit into that facility. We've gotten to work with the architects to design it and the school will own this building forever and it's got a cooking school it's got a commercial kitchen to do prep to take our show on the road to the other schools in the district and it's got training space so that we can continue to do more food literacy at a district level which is huge because when the district buys in and says this is important then you're really winning for kids health so a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of success stories are coming very soon in addition to the ones that are already happening and is this an elementary school where it's going to be based yeah it's at leotata floyd elementary where the average annual income is eight thousand dollars a year and so there is definitely a lot of food insecurity and with that also comes a lot of toxic stress which also results in chronic disease. So these vegetables are really important for these kids. So we're, we're delighted um, to have the privilege to serve them. Congratulations. How about you, Nick? Yeah, I think a success story from the Department of Food and Ag is that my position exists. <laughs> <laughs> not every state in the nation has uh, farm to school positions. And not only does my position exist, but also the California Department of Education has a farm to school uh, person as well. How many states? I was curious. Oh gosh, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but if you look at the National Farm to School Network online, they have that data and they have it on an infographic. So it's really nice and easy to consume and understand. I just can't remember it. But um, not only does the position exist, but there's a lot of institutional buy-in in the Department of Food and Ag. So October is farm to school month coming up. 
and the CDFA, uh, they have a daily blog called the Planting Seeds blog, and uh, Farm to School is gonna take over the blog for the month, so we're gonna get five posts about Farm to School. The secretary is gonna go out and do visits, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure she'll be at the festival on Saturday, but she was just at the groundbreaking of the Broccoli headquarters, and um, it's been really inspiring for me, coming from the nonprofit world to a state agency and to actually see that everyone cares, people are invested in this, and they're really excited to grow farm to school. Kirsten. Yeah, so we um, we had a really fun chance this summer to partner with um, Stephanie and Aisha Curry's new foundation that they created, which is called Eat, Learn, Play. So really exciting to see, um, you know, big local celebrities actually advocating for really good, positive things with kids. And, um, and, and just for those of you who are not basketball fans or knowledge, Steph Curry, Warriors, and then his wife, uh, who's really into food, like she's, she's a at restaurants, yeah. a chef. Yeah, so I, I just think there's, I, I loved what you were saying about, you know, there are so many parents that feel the pressure to be the cool mom at soccer by bringing the Oreos. I, I think there's a huge amount of potential to actually leverage some of the star power of professional athletes, you know, actors, whoever, like big famous people that kids look up to, to have, and we were at this event with, um, with them in Oakland in July, and just, we had this whole kind of rainbow of fruits and vegetables that we had kids tasting, and when he, as an NBA player, came through and was tasting the vegetables, and he was, he was like, oh, I love this radish. How many kids went in and tasted that radish after that? It was incredible, and so I just think it's really exciting. You see so many of these professional athletes that are sponsored by the big junk food companies or the less healthy things, and it's, I think it's a, a real win, and I hope that we see more of that, um, of that kind of star power are being leveraged to make healthy eating cool. Great examples. And uh, Diana, what's, what's your one example of an success that you want to shout out about? So I think I just wanted to share that um, we just hired our central kitchen manager. He's an executive chef from some very popular restaurants in the Roseville area, um, Land Ocean Siena, Yard House. Um, so now we have two chefs, two executive chefs. And I have always had a vision that the restaurant community will support our school meal program. And I really believe that will happen. And I think that um, this one has a lot of restaurant connections too, and probably people in this room. Um, and I just see chef-inspired dishes on our lunch menu and where it's actually super cool to eat lunch at school. And it's not about, oh, the free kids eat lunch. And that's our vision, that every kid, regardless of income, has a freshly prepared meal at school every day. Breakfast and lunch. Next question at the mic. Hello, everyone. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. Just wanted to give a little background on myself. I grew up on my family's fourth-generation cattle ranch uh, that's still active today, about an hour north of Lake Tahoe. Um, I also serve on the California Rangeland Trust as a board of director, uh, which is the largest land land trust in the state of California. There's about 330,000 acres in conservation across the state and continues to grow. Um, California Rangeland Trust has a partnership with Rayleigh's called Where Food Grows and, and Grazes, and it works with uh, local students and the Sacramento region from low-income neighborhoods, bringing them out to the farms and ranches to see where their food comes from, and then they go visit Rayleigh's afterwards as well to get that connection. 
And I think that it's becoming more and more important for not only this current generation, but the next generation, the educational component of reconnecting us back to the land uh, and where our food comes from. And what I've, what I've loved about this program is seeing the look on the kids' faces when they go out there. It's really invaluable education that they receive there. Um, and regenerative agriculture has really been a buzzword recently that many farmers and ranchers across the state are beginning to change land and livestock management practices in order to adapt to climate change. And I think a common problem that was somewhat alluded on the panel is that getting hands on deck in both the public and private sectors to be able to support this transition to re regenerative agriculture practices to get to schools or you know, to get to schools or farms located around our California urban cities. Um, and my question is, is how do we grow a larger infrastructure to connect California farmers and ranchers practicing regenerative agriculture and market to provide sustainable food to local school districts and U.S. consumers in general? Uh, that might be, yes, it might be a whole new discussion. Uh, and as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, field trips, because it feels like, uh, uh, you know, we go to the Sutter's Ford and Coloma's, which of course is important to learn a history, but I was wondering if, you know, farm to, school to farm field trips is something that is considered or done. So anyway, I just want to throw that in there as part B of the question. Nicholas, you want to start? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is super important at the state level and, um, like the first part is just defining regenerative. Uh, you know, there's not a regenerative certification right now, so it's really about uh, how do we, how do we like, uh, you know, really specifically measure measure that activity. But the the best way to do that, you know, is know your farmer and know your practices. So a lot of the time in farm to school, beef and meat is left out, and um, you know, not all across the state though. So in Humboldt, they have a Taco Tuesday where every uh, every ingredient is sourced locally, including the beef, with their local ranchers, which is really cool. Um, and with CDFA, we have a tool called the California Farmer Marketplace. And so I do outreach to farmers to try to bring them onto this list and then try to support uh, schools in making those relationships through the marketplace. They're allowed to do inquiries. So that's really the way that we're trying to scale that, that type of activity up. And I'd love to work with you if you have a list of farmers that you know are practicing those things to uh, you know, get out there and then try to connect those local schools. That's really my job. Um, because we don't have a grant program, a lot of states have a farm to school grant program, I say we have social capital. <laughs> so, so I can connect you to those places and try to do those farmer interactions. Also, um, the, it's NCAT, the Center for Appropriate Technology, is doing a producer training right now that they're developing at the USDA level in order for our state agencies to have a better process for engaging farmers and, and allowing them to understand the school process. Because that's a huge institutional challenge and it's like speaking completely different languages. So hopefully when that training is done this year, they'll roll it out to us next year and then we'll really be more effective. But it starts with the relationships anyway, so we don't need to wait for the training. We can just do it now. So I'd love your info and we can connect. Thank you. Next question. Yeah, um, I'm a parent and my son just started kindergarten. 
Um, and I guess I've just been surprised, but I mean, it sounds like everything's moving in a very positive direction, but I've been so surprised, like looking at the calendar of like how much fried food is on the menu currently. And I'm just wondering, like, are there plans sooner rather than later to kind of like start cutting some of that stuff out? Because it feels so old school. Is, Diana. Your, is your son, or I didn't know if it was, okay. Just know there's nothing fried on our menu. It's not fried. So in the school meal program, there are very strict regulations on what we're serving. And so what might appear fried in the commercial marketplace, some of those items have been reformulated for school meals for school meal marketplace. Now, that is confusing to a kid, right? If we're trying to teach him about healthy eating, and he's eating fried taquitos at the local restaurant, but then he goes to a school lunch program, they're not fried, he thinks they're fried because they look the same. Um, that is part of the food system challenges and something we hope to change. But I do feel that when we do open that kitchen, we start preparing bone-in, chicken leg, um, which we serve now anyway, but we're buying it. Um, we're not preparing it ourselves. When we start cooking some made-from-scratch meals, our kids will revolt. They'll be like, where's that other stuff? Um, except for maybe the little kinders, because they won't know any different, you know? <laughs> um, it'll take probably 10, 12 years to change that needle. But um, know that the sodium targets, the fat, the calories um, are not what you think. So if you're interested in the complete nutritionals, we can give them to you. Oh, that would be great. Thank yeah. you so much. All right, last question from me. Um, I, I, I feel like and I hope that uh, there's connections made here in the panel and you guys will talk uh, along with talking between you and the audience members because it sounds like there's a lot of good influencers out there. Um, I guess for us as parents, right, students, foodies in the audience, farmers, um, people who really want to help you get better food into the schools, how can we help? What can we do? What advice would you give to us as individual Californians uh, to push and help you succeed? Uh, and I'll, we'll start with Diana. <laughs> you, you hog. No, but... Uh, but the, you know, I, I, like, I like something quickly, well, not quickly, but from each of you. So yeah. you can start, Diana. So um, it's probably not where you guys wanted me to go, but I go back to what Amber talked about earlier. When a kid eats a cupcake mid-morning, because, sorry, that's my phone. Um, <laughs> we'll edit it out. I'm so embarrassed. It's my kid. I know, we, we're crossing. Just, um, <laughs> when, when a kid eats a cupcake mid-morning because somebody brought it in for a birthday party, they're not eating the salad bar with blueberries, strawberries, grapefruit, whatever we put on it that week, stone fruits right now, peaches, pears from Stillwater next month, that's on your menu, um, they're not eating it because they just filled up on all the other junk. From what I know, the kindergartners' are, classes are some of the worst because they ask the parents to bring the snack in. You have no idea what your kids are eating. And we have a lot of parents unhappy about that, and I don't blame them. Parents are telling us, I don't care what you serve your kid, but don't serve my kid that. And I don't blame them. And we do need the adults to be adults. 
And we spend a lot of time making sure those mandarins are freshly picked, but then the kids pick them up and throw them away. And that pains me to stand at the trash can and see that. Um, so for me, how somebody could help is advocate with your principal to change your wellness policy so kids eat better food at school. That's how you would help. Kirsten. So I have a couple of thoughts. I mean, obviously, I would say, you know, Revolution Foods is a company that's interested in talking to parents, school leaders, um, you know, about all different kinds of ways that we might be able to work with your school or school district. I would also say, as a parent, I'm a, I'm a, parent, a mom of three, and um, just am active kind of in the school food space. I think it's really important that we, whatever your income level, that we have our kids eat school meals. Um, and I think partly because you know, the federal guidelines are good enough that they will ensure that the school meals have a, a adequate nutritional balance. Um, but they're never going to get better unless there's high enough participation to give people like the food service directors across, you know, all the different districts enough funding to make the meals better. And so um, I just think that participation, I actually think that the federal government should provide free meals for all kids. I don't think it should be just for kids who qualify at certain income levels. And I think it should just be a universal right at school that all kids get that. And, and we're never going to get there unless we start having our kids eat their school meals every day. Nicholas. Well, I'm, I'm going to say uh, support these people <laughs> that are in this room. You know, jo you can join the mailing list for the California Farm to School Network, and I will send you a monthly email in October. You'll get more than one. And know, we'll put all welcome. the information that you have given us through yeah. the last 90 minutes on our website. Okay, perfect. So you can find it there and probably in the podcast notes, hopefully, too, if you're listening. Um, but it's all about supporting your local champions, and these are real champions who are here in the room. Um, and if you drove from far away and you need to know the people doing it in your community locally, come talk to me, and I can probably help you connect to them. So, um, you know, that's, that's really the goal is whatever you're interested in. And like I said before, there's three buckets of farm to school. Whether you want to set up farm tours with your friend, the rancher, or whether you want to make sure that that rancher can connect to their local food services uh, department, you know, like get involved in that way. There's not a one size fits all uh, solution and, and whatever's gonna fit into your life, do that. That's it. Amber. All right, um, please donate. <laughs> we have five staff. We reach over 800 kids every week and we need help. Uh, we wanna do more, uh, we won't be satisfied until all the kids that need it are receiving food literacy and all the kids need it. So uh, we need help and donating is the best way. Foodliteracycenter.org. <laughs> and we will add that to the list. All right, last word from Todd. Uh, send your kids to Luther Burbank High School <laughs> where they can get out in the garden. Make sure they get outside. I think really um, to show curiosity for your food. I mean, we can get really heady and talk about regenerative agriculture, which I'm a huge fan, and soil regeneration and carbon sequestration, but we can start by telling our kids that it's cool to try different things, and as parents, we can expose them to different things. So the first time they see kohlrabi is not with amber, um, but maybe they don't like it, but they've seen it or tasted it a couple times, and it's they understand there's a culture of kind of curiosity around food and that there's a lot of um, cool stuff to learn and explore that's connected to food and that food is our connection to the environment and the rest of the world I think planting that seed young is something that we can all do just by 
being curious and eating different types of food and that can be fun and that can be cool and that brings a platform, sets a foundation that can be built on um, that hopefully ends up with young people being more curious, eating more foods, eating fresher, healthier, more local things. They can understand why and growing up and then helping us change all these policies and systems because they understand and they, they get that. I think just by exploring it at a very simple level so that it's not the first time that they taste something at school and they see all these things can actually do a whole lot and just ask them questions and let them know that there's people connected to their food and the earth and the environments connected to their food as well and just leave it at that and let them think about it kids are smart you know. all right so tomorrow I, I i report back to duty for library at ethel phillips i'm going to go have my school lunch in the cafeteria I, you you all are very inspiring and thank you for all that you do um thank you for making the time a great discussion and hope and great questions to the audience and hopefully this will lead to more support and better food and healthier students so um thank you very much uh and thanks audience and we'll wrap it up and say have a good night you've been listening to california groundbreakers tonight's food for thought conversation was held on september 25th 2019 at Fitsum Studios in Sacramento. Thanks to our panelists, Nick Anisich, Diana Flores, Todd McPherson, Amber Stott, and Kristen Toby for the great conversation. A special thanks to Fitsum Studios owner Marco Gassar for hosting this event, and to Jennifer Fregata for catering and bartending. To Nate Graham and Groundbreakers board member Nicole Grant Krieg, thanks for helping us run this event smoothly. Thanks also to Caleb Clark of Kickstart Audio for recording and producing this podcast. And of course, thanks to you for listening. Find out when our next event is by going to our website, californiagroundbreakers.org.